0: Another edition of The Dishcast. This one I've been looking forward to uh, for quite a while and been extremely impressed by our guest who's here today. Her name is Brianna Joy Gray. She's the host of the podcast Bad Faith, which I really recommend. It's a wonderful display of what I think of liberal virtues. In other words, it's a really interesting conversation. It doesn't duck any of the tough questions, but it deals with them all in a a really civil and generous way. And I, I think that's just in this context, in this culture, it's incredibly important. So have a check it out. Check out Bad Faith. Brianna, thank you so much for coming.
1: Thank you let for me, having let me.
0: me let, oh, you're welcome. Let uh, let me let, I always start out with this question. Tell me where you were born, where you grew up, how your childhood and adolescence were.
1: Sure. It's a little bit of a saga. I was born in Washington, D.C. My parents met at at Howard University. And so I was born here. But when we were two, we moved to North Carolina, uh, where my mother was doing uh, a PhD program at NC State. When I was around eight years old, we moved to Saudi Arabia. My parents became teachers in the international teaching circuit. And after two years in Jeddah, we moved to Nairobi, Kenya and lived there for six years. And we came back when I was 15 to New York and I graduated from high school from New York. So I call myself a New Yorker now. Some New Yorkers might feel some sort of way about it. But at this point, I've been there for 20 years.
0: So your upbringing is a bit like what we used to call military brats. You were kind of stationed around the world for a while, at least in those are also not those are very different countries. Tell me how that affected (laughs) your views of the world. How that must have had a huge impact on you. I mean, really, you weren't brought up mainly in the United States.
1: No, I wasn't. Well. For me, since I was pre-adolescent, you know, an eight, nine-year-old in Saudi Arabia, a lot of the restrictions that might come to mind that might have made my experience negative didn't really apply to me. So expats in Saudi Arabia live on these compounds. We lived on what is like the biggest compound, I believe, if not the city, then the country, Saudi city. And so for me, it meant a lot of freedom. In North Carolina, I wasn't allowed to go beyond the end of the cul de sac by myself. In Saudi Arabia, I had free reign in this enormous enclosed area with dozens of swimming pools and tennis courts, and you know, banana palms to run around. And me and my best friend had free reign, and it was a blast. We rollerbladed, and we bicycled. It was it. It felt like I finally got my little like Harriet the Spy style. existence that I, I admired in the movies. And then Kenya was just, it was, it's just a gorgeous, it's a beautiful country. You know, my parents both taught at the school. My mom was a school psychologist. My dad was a science teacher. And so we were very enmeshed in the expat community. It felt very intimate and it was all I knew. And you get a certain standard of living there that we weren't able to access as a family in the States. I mean, part of what prompted the move was the rat race and my father working multiple jobs and my mother feeling like the, her PhD program wasn't going to pay off financially in the way I think that she perhaps naively had hoped when she entered it. And uh, looking around and saying, how do we escape? How do I get my kid to access a better quality of school than what they're currently able to experience? And she kind of ended up moving abroad as sort of a hack. And so I missed the entire 90s. And when I came back to the States, it was a little bit of a a learning curve for me. Um, Because a lot of the kind of cultural issues, the racial dynamics, et cetera, only had the vaguest of imprints on my mind in an international context where there were different kinds of dynamics and pushes and pulls. And plus, I was young and, you know those things just weren't as front of mind. And so my mother likes to laugh and joke and say, I'm like the only person in the world who was radicalized to the left by Harvard University. <laughs> <laughs> in part because that was, you know, going to college and being in law school, you know, was some of the first times that I was really confronted with some of the issues that a lot of folks are forced to engage with at a much younger age here in the States.
0: So you said you went to Howard. Is that what you said? I, I, I went to Harvard. Harvard, okay, absolutely.
1: My okay. parents went to Howard. Yeah, right, went right, to right, Harvard. right, right,
0: right, right, right. Was that just a, for undergraduate?
1: For both uh, undergrad and law school.
0: Oh, okay. So you then went to law school. Jesus. So yeah, we did not overlap. I was there much, much earlier. I was there in the uh, 80s and very beginning of the 90s. Mm. How do you mm. think that altered your view of America? Was it a, a, a shock? Did you relearn it? Did you go back over the... You probably had not much to remember from your childhood specifically about it. So you're almost like kind of an immigrant, really, but an American immigrant, as it were, to your own country. Yeah.
1: Quite. I mean, I I still grew up with two black American parents and the culture in my home was never, you know, it didn't shy away from the realities of, you know, the history of race in America. There were race doesn't not exist outside of America. Right. You know, we lived in a country that was only kind of recently decolonized. There were interesting race and class dynamics that happened in Kenya, right, where a South Asian minority was sort of left in place as a leadership, rulership class. And a lot of the affluent uh, Kenyans were of South Asian descent. There's all kinds of legacies of colonialism wherever you go. And race tends to be exploited as part of a power dynamic in many different kinds of contexts, right? So I do think that sometimes America can see itself as exceptional in this regard in a way that it isn't, although of course race manifests here in particular ways, the way it's particular and specialized in every in every place that it crops up. So I do think what growing up abroad did was make me more I'd say I don't take as, I didn't take as much for granted in terms of certain scripts and tropes that are applied to describe the the situations that we are in and it does I think make me a little bit more I don't know some the a kind of a lack of America a lack of perceiving America America to be racially exceptional can sometimes I think broaden your perspective in a way that makes you a little less stuck in your willingness to hear alternatives and alternative ways to solve the problem as well.
0: Within Kenya, of course, there's also a big tribal question too, which, which is part of the, the politics. How did you, how do you think of tribalism in the Kenyan sense along with racism? Are they connected? Are they the same? Are they similar?
1: I mean, I, I don't know that I, so my understanding of my experience i should say of racism in kenya had very little to do with ethnic tensions or class tensions in the country itself i lived in a very hermetically right. sealed expat community so the racism that i observed as a middle school and early high school student in kenya was on the campus it was in conversations you know about which students from which ethnic groups on campus tended to have an easier time being accepted to the school for instance my mother as a guidance counselor did assessments of kids in the admit uh, the admissions process to see if they met standards and would sometimes observe what she perceived to be a bias against kids from one one family background either because the family was less affluent or because they came from a less well regarded n- nation, state, you know, a, a lesser well regarded country, that there would be exceptions made from some students and not others in a way that was frustrating coming from her perspective as an American, where race, I think, is admirably discussed much more openly than it sometimes is in these international contexts where people pretend that, you know, we're citizens of the world, we're all international, everybody loves each other, there couldn't possibly be any problems here because on its face... It is an international school and it is diverse. But of course, there are all kinds of geopolitical concerns that go into these admissions processes. People who come from embassies, people who are prestigious because they are dignitaries from uh, this powerful country or that. And those things in combination with kind of like more raw racial factors played in to how the school saw incoming students and was willing to place incoming students and how it regarded them. Uh, academically, in that context,
0: right. And so, in terms of the tribal struggles within Kenya, because you really weren't part of that broader culture, you weren't part of any of the tribes there, you would not have had that direct experience of that kind of tribal animosity or that tribal rivalry, right? That's what you were saying.
1: No. Also, I was in middle school, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in high school, and not really paying attention. Okay, I got um, you. I got you. I'm just, I'm just curious. To the Mau, Mau
0: caves. <laughs> I'm just curious about how we, you know, how, because if you have this great international perspective, how we think of different racial groups in different countries, how they interact, whether it be Hutus or Tutsis, whether it be the different groupings in the Netherlands, whether and how these interact with the American situation as it is. I think the American situation is obviously uh, very different and quite unique. And like you, I had to kind of come into my 20s and try and from a completely different with even less context to sort of begin to understand it. So let me ask you a very broad, I hope, constructive question. I think there is a consensus, more generally, that most people, apart from really some awful racists, want to see Black America flourish more, a flourishing of African-American population, of culture, of economic success. How do we do that? I mean, because I think there is, we've gotten into a situation where we're blaming this or that and the other, we engaged in polarizing. I just want to know what we can do practically, in your view, that mm. would help more than anything else the flourishing of African Americans.
1: Well, I think we live in a country that has had its social safety net systemically eroded over the course of the last few decades in particular. And we should be working toward providing some of the basic social supports that exist in similarly situated affluent countries. I think that it's not a great mystery in many, many respects why we have the poverty rates we do across any number of ethnic groups. I think there are some pretty notable historical reasons why black Americans historically had disproportionately occupied the lo- lower tranche of American society economically. I think that we can look to government backed programs like redlining that have caused enormous amounts of housing segregation that persists to date and that informs your access to quality public schools which of course informs your access to earning potential and on down the line and that reforming all of those things creating a housing program i i believe in housing as a human right i think that every american should have access to safe, stable, clean accommodations. I think that everyone should have access to higher education for free. I think Bernie Sanders, for instance, advocated for free public education. So your um, emphasis I think that if we is, live in a world...
0: Yeah, so your emphasis is, is on class as much as it is on race. So this, this argument that well, there's a big internal argument about which do you emphasize? And you seem to be emphasizing class, but without dis- you know, dismissing race as, the, as another... Uh, independent variable right is that am i getting that right
1: well the thing is there are some specific racial programs right that i think are warranted in pursuing because there are specific harms that have been implemented along racial lines right redlining is not racially let's get to some specifics
0: i want to i want to know which policy yeah policies that you would promote that you think would help the flourishing of african-americans in particular
1: well, so, for example, free public college, universal health care, housing as a human right, a fifteen dollars minimum wage, for instance would mean a raise for thirty eight percent of black Americans. So those are right off the top of the dome ones I would I would prioritize there are some other policies that are racially specific in nature and policies like reparations that I think are also I also support, but the Reality is that so much of racial disparity, so many of the effects of racialized programs that specifically were implemented to create disparities manifest in class terms, right? So housing discrimination occurred against Black Americans, redlining, the ghettoization of Black communities occurred. But the idea of not being able to rent a house in a white, affluent, Relatively affluent or middle class or even working class community is harmful because you are siloed in a way that prevents you from growing generational wealth, prevents you from accessing equal school districts, right, because we didn't actually have separate be equal and all these things down the line. So even though the harms sometimes are specifically racialized, the cure is often met in a universal policy if it is the case the universal policy is adequately designed to actually not have holes in the sev. And that is the problem. And I think the really legitimate critique that gets leveraged leveraged against New Deal policies, for instance, where they were universal in nature, but they were designed in many ways or had the unintended effect in many ways of leaving behind huge swaths of the population and therefore deepened disparities in some respects. So there were so many white Americans that were able to benefit from things like the GI bill, from housing grants, being able to start to create the middle-class wealth that now is the basis, the the housing value that is the basis of middle-class wealth that so many black Americans were shut out of. And it's going to be very difficult to claim that back. And of course, as I've described, there are all those downstream effects in terms of education, public school access, et cetera. My
0: concern with that is simply the practicality of how you correct for that. It's it's because it's obviously it wasn't everyone who was black. It was particular a particular generation of African-Americans that were particularly cut out in terms of redlining, for example, which I think is a very powerful reason for why there is a wealth gap. I've just always struggled with How do you resolve that wealth gap? Do you just take a bunch of money from some people and give it to others? Who do you take it from? These becoming incredibly difficult, which is why I'm more interested in the way, in your view, that simply alleviating poverty, really, and opening up opportunities would do the trick. Do you think that's all that's needed?
1: Well, let's interrogate what it means to take money from one group and give it to another, because this happens all the time, right? For instance, the COVID relief bill last year was the greatest upward transfer of wealth in American history. When we say we're going to have tax on goods and lower taxes on, let's say, b- allow people who own homes to write off money on their houses? What we're saying is people who have to consume, spend most of their money on food and regular you know, goods are being taxed at a greater rate than people who are able to have enough money to put it into home ownership or other kinds of passive income, right? We have a whole system in this country that regularly upwardly distributes wealth. And we've seen this in the smaller proportion that working people get from their labor, despite that The fact that productivity has gone up over the last 40 years or so, so that in the 1950s or 60s, the average gap between CEO pay and worker pay was something like 30 to 1, and now it's over 300 to 1, right? So we're not experiencing, you know, in many ways, America as a whole now is experiencing what certain marginalized groups have. Experience for a long time, which is that because of the way our law and society is structured, working people aren't able to recoup the benefits of their labor. It's not that they're lazy. Working people aren't working less hard than they did in 1960 or 1950. It's that we have a legal and economic edifice that continues to strip people of their right to agitate, to claim more of the benefits that they're giving into society.
0: We could talk about this for a long time, because also we're talking about the impact of technology, <laughs> the impact of globalization, the impact of automation, the impact of many other forces mm-hmm. on inequality in the society, which I agree has grown to an, a staggering extent. It also is a point you've also made. It exists within the African-American community as well. That, that, that in fact, I think the proportion of the very wealthy to the Poor, the middle class is roughly the same. I mean, in terms of the disproportion. Now, they were talking about different levels, but the inequality structures are similar. Um, you've had many debates in which, and so let me let me. I think the left has done a great job of exposing how, in my view, capitalism kind of had catastrophic success in many ways and generating wealth, but the wealth went to a very small number of people for all sorts of particular reasons, not entirely governmental. So I think you've actually made a lot of progress on that in terms of persuading people like me, who is actually in favor of redistribution of wealth because I think it's destabilizing. But the idea that that could solve all the problems of African-Americans or would overnight does not convince me because it seems to me that there are other factors involved that we have to account for, namely cultural factors. And I know you've talked about this tension between understanding this as an economic question and as a cultural question. Do you think there's any value to the cultural critique?
1: I'm not sure what the cultural critiques are. I mean, you know, I'm Black American and I don't find myself to be culturally deficient in any way. And when I look around my family and my community, I see very obvious uh, structural causes for the situations they're in. In the same way that I see when I look at a lot of White communities, for example, you know, when I look at, let's say this is the stereotypical example, but a a rural white community in West Virginia, I don't subscribe to the belief that the reason they are in multiple generations of poverty is because of a cultural deficit. I see globalization. I see trade deals that shipped uh, industrial jobs overseas. I see a changing energy market that is making it less and less fruitful and profitable for coal mining to persist. I see environmental pressures that also constrain the industry that was the only industry that that community was able to benefit from for a long time. I see policies that were decided to set it up as being extractive in nature. So the benefits of all of that coal mining from that community over the years never got put back into the community. I see an opioid crisis driven by the Sacklers and other pharmaceutical players that intentionally preyed on these communities, pushing drugs and oversubscribing opioids to this community in a way that has had devastating effects. So with all of that going on, and that's just taking that particular white community as an example, and there's similar things that have happened in Black America with the well-documented push by the CIA of drugs into black communities, et cetera, et cetera, and on and on down the line, redlining we've discussed, why with all of those structural factors at play, we would skip over all of that and start talking about the ephemera of culture, which it's my view that the government doesn't have really any ability or perhaps any um, authority to start trying to legislate over. If I thought, you know, Barack Obama standing on a stage, as he has done, saying, Black people pull up your pants and act right, would have some magical effect on economic outcomes and people in deep poverty in this country, then I'd say he can do it all day. And in in fact, he can do it all day. It's a free country, there's nobody stopping him. But there have always been people, both within and outside of the Black American community, people like Bill Cosby, people like Barack Obama, who have done the finger wagging and the argument that it really is a social issue at the same time that they are in a position of power to address the well-documented, really tangible material issues at hand. And so what it starts to feel like is the focus on culture is a sleight of hand to prevent people from ever addressing any of the very obvious policy concerns that are staring us in the face.
0: Sure. But does that mean that culture doesn't entrench certain patterns that help people, that prevent people flourishing. So, for example, let's say the, the a, not, a culture sure that, that accepts. That. But culture does seem to matter in that. For example, the one thing that we can see independently of class dynamics is that a solid two-parent household without instability can dramatically change an individual's prospects, a kid's prospects. In fact, we know that is probably the most the biggest factor that can help someone survive and prosper in America. So you can see very poor immigrant families, like Hmong families, for example, who have come here, don't even speak the language, have massive disadvantages, have within one generation their kids in colleges. And because their family structure is so much stronger than family structures in different ethnicities. Now, You can argue what the source of that is, but isn't it true that is critically important for the success of children?
1: Well, for one, my understanding is that uh, Hmong folk immigrants are some of the worst off in terms of immigrant groups in uh, educational uh, attainment. But they are doing extremely, and
0: poor Asian immigrants in general have done extremely well in these circumstances. Also, very poor African American kids have done very well through things like the SAT. But in general, they are suffering. I mean, if, if you look more generally, if you take these categories for real, 70% of Asian American families have two parents solidly in the home for most of their childhood. That's true of 30% of African American. Now, you you just look at that reproduced through the culture. And surely that matters.
1: Right, but you, I mean, you 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 ra- this is interesting though, because you raised the idea of Hmong as an example, because they come from two parent households. I can't speak to that. I don't know what the statistics are for that community. But I just did a quick Google and it looks like uh, it says 38% have less than a high school degree, about 25% uh, percentage points lower than both the Asian American and US averages. Just 14% have a bas- bachelor's degree, less than half the national average. So that would seem to be a contradiction there between this idea that there's a one-to-one or any kind of you know direct relationship no. between having a two-parent household. But but let me let me step back and we but we, the, but the we know
0: question, Brianna, you you know is that the data is you could try and find examples among humongous or whatever. But you know in general that this family structure is incredibly important for the success of children.
1: Well let's so let me let's take it back and, and look at it. I just That's, I just no, addressed that because I thought no it was an interesting example because Hamong are notably, I mean, used as the example of why it's not always useful to talk about Asian American immigrants as a group. Because so let's as not we get know, sidelined so with them. Let's talk determines- about
0: Asian Americans.
1: Okay, but. If I may, just so much of what, well, let's not talk, let's not talk about Asian American immigrants for this reason, because so much of what determines the success of various immigrant populations is the educational level of the immigrant group before they come into the country and also their ability to access, to my earlier point, middle-class environments that have demonstrably higher returns from their public schools. Since, again, we live in a country where your school is funded by your tax base, your ability to integrate into a lot of these segregated communities means that you have enormous educational advantages, even if you're going to a public school. So, but let's take a step back and answer this question that you initially asked about family structure. A two parent family structure. I was reading one of your recent posts on, on, on your Substack, and you pointed out that something like 80 odd percent of um, Black folks in Harlem in the 1920s came from two parent. Households. I, I didn't, you know, research and look into that. But let's take that at face value. Whatever the number is now, it's obviously much lower for people across the spectrum. Every racial group has more divorce and more single parent households than they did 100 years ago. The changes from uh, the average black Harlem resident in 1920 to 1960 to 2020 Is it your contention that Black American culture, whatever that means, has just radically morphed all on its own from 1920 to 1960 to 2020? What is this Black culture that is so ephemeral that it results in those kinds of radically different outcomes over that period of time?
0: Well, in fact, what we're talking about is simply family structure here, which we can then examine across various groupings, right? Right. And what we know that within any particular grouping or between groupings, but let's just stick it within, that people who come from two-parent homes that are stable do demonstrably better. In fact, there is no other independent variable that more accurately predicts their success in life than that. Mm. And when you see one group in the society with vastly much lower levels of that, what we might call cultural capital for, the gen- for children, it becomes almost impossible for those children to succeed at the same rate and in the same way as people who come from more stable backgrounds. So that's the only point that I am really trying to make. And when no, I, a particular I wanna, I wanna culture engage has a, in that. Yeah. Okay. Go on. Engage. What, what's interesting
1: what what's interesting to me is that the that the level of single parent households in, let's say, the 1960s for black Americans is similar to what it is now for white Americans, right? But the uh, achievement gap persists right the number of white kids in poverty the number of wh- white kids who have achieved higher education that white people were not are not seemingly so disadvantaged by having the number of single parent households today as black people were having the number of single parent households I think that's in true i think in fact and certainly
0: in, in fact you mm-hmm, can see ahead, that for example the rates of people not getting through college the rates of income in all these communities that are suffering this family breakdown essentially they're doing worse much worse than they were before they're going downhill they're going backwards and well so so, for one college
1: college admissions college attainment the number of people who actually go and, and matriculate and graduate from college today is much higher across all groups than it was in 1960 but to your point about the more recent kind of decline in white men in particular who are graduating from college i think that's a relevant phenomenon that we should get into, but which and is a little more attenuated from this kind of like co- compa- multi-decade comparison that I'm trying to get into right now, as opposed to this more short term phenomenon that we're observing, which is relevant and we should we can absolutely get back to. The point that I'm trying to make is that there is always this conversation that exists about culture, that somehow that there's this fixed, intrinsic, essential That's going on with Black people that has caused there to be this phenomenon, which to me is belied by the radical shifts that happen over very short periods of time. And what I would like to point to is that there were, in fact, policy changes that occurred between the 1920s and, let's say, the 1970s that had an enormous effect on the incentives to have a two parent household for low income Americans, which we all know are disproportionately Black. So, for example, The way that welfare was structured made it so that if there was any evidence that there was a man in a home, that your benefits could be dramatically cut, taken away entirely. And there's I mean, there's a a classic scene in a movie, Claudine, which I highly recommend starring James Earl Jones and Diane Carroll, in which she's a single mother who starts dating this man who has a good job. You know, sanitation workers notoriously actually earn very competitive salaries in cities like New York. He's bringing her things that he finds in the trash and, you know, improving her life. And she has to hide these items away, lest in the course of their courtship, he is considered to be a man in the house long before they're in that romantic stage. Right. And then her, her benefits and that enable her to help take care of all of her children would be taken away. So. It's frustrating sometimes, again, to be talking about culture when there doesn't seem to be any interest in actually creating the conditions that would make a community want to have the kind of cultural shift that you're talking about. Except so if
0: it, let me if, let me just answer so, that specific point, which sure. is that, yeah, we did. The 90s were about reforming welfare so it did not incentivize having children without a father in the home. Uh, no no that, no, was, no, part no. <laughs> well, that perform- was part of that was part of it that's part of its um uh, project
1: And the the welfare reform of the 90s did the exact op, it doubled down on all of those horrible reforms that made it so that you had to have all kinds of work requirements. Look, if you care about someone being able to be in their home and take care of their children and provide a stable household, saying that you had to have these work requirements and educational hoops that you had to jump through constantly means testing everything and making people report back in to justify their benefits as though it can be a full-time job the time it takes to have to apply for all of these benefits because of the mean testing that was built into these programs. And people are much more, have much deeper knowledge of the historical vagaries of welfare reform and quotation marks. I say reform because it was the the biggest cutting of the social safety net that's ever occurred. And it took a, a Democrat to do it, mind you, not a Republican. Reagan, Reagan dreams that he could have cut the social safety net the way that Bill Clinton was able to do. But that's exactly my point that the, that all of these changes to welfare, reforms of welfare, served to disincentivize what in a middle-class white context is perceived to be adaptive social behavior, where where people want the mother to stay at home and not work, where people want there to be that time with the kids. And if you actually want, let's say, Black people or any other historically marginalized group, poor people across the whole, to have those same kinds of family structures, then we should be talking about how to structure our policy to create that outcome, not simply pontificating about how I wish black people had two parent homes, because the effect of that, in my view, when it's when it stays in the realm of rhetoric and just saying, oh, it's, you know, black people have all these problems because they don't have two parents in the home," But there's no policy follow up. It just serves as an excuse to not actually do anything about the problem. Well, and let's have justify a policy follow up to funnel money up into the 1% instead of investing it in communities.
0: I I, sure. I, I can see that. I, I can see that. The question is, how do we incentivize fathers to stay in the same home as their children?
1: So there's a lot of things here. And I'm sure, Andrew, you've been at this a long time. I'm sure that you have read all of the research about what predicts poverty and the relationship between poverty and education, housing access, ability to go to good schools, all of these things start from cradle to grave, right? Access to contraception. You know, a lot of people- But the consequence of what you're saying
0: is you're kind of removing any agency from these people at all. Everything is structurally caused. People are just reacting to stuff that is done to them. It's as if when you're living in a sort of bizarre situation in which Almost the tiny, well, a third of kids have the possibility of a stable home, and that that is not obviously a hugely important factor in their future. I mean, I would, I'm, maybe well, you could have something. I think that people, people have agency. I, I think
1: that people, of course, have agency. But I'm, I, I'll put to you, what would you like? What do you want to do with that? You know, to, to people, a lot of people make it out of horrible life situations and they still succeed, right? A lot of some people come up out of all kinds of one, you know, single parent households, low-income households, abusive households, and they succeed. Other people have every benefit and privilege in the world and they fail. Of course, individual ability, merit, agency, will, grit, all of these things are also factors. But I can't legislate grit.
0: No. I
1: can't, I can't just tell someone to 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 will themselves and work harder. What I my perspective is, as a humanist, as a person believes that there should be a basic standard of living for human beings because they are human beings and because we live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world and are able to provide for them, that we should have a baseline standard for everyone, kind of regardless of individual grit, because I don't think it's the government's job to be making assessments of who is and isn't deserving of having basic human rights.
0: But there are other institutions, which we would not call government itself, that, that did culturally attempt to encourage, for example, two-parent home stable families, like the Black church, for example, which had a long role in defending the Black family and its importance in the system. So in other words, you can have cultural shifts that, that stigmatize absent fathers that or even it, you could you could actually uh, condition certain benefits on the father being in the home living there i'm just i'm trying well, to think of ways to make things better brianna that's all and this is obviously a huge problem yeah. that we could that we might be able to solve Or we might if i heard anyone like talking about, i mean some people do obviously obama did but he also he emphasized both structural economic questions as you are but also cultural questions that have definitely changed In many different cultures, I mean, I look at the culture of the Midwest or the the poor white Midwest, and it is a very different culture than it was 50 years ago. And it's for the worse, much for the worse. And what we particularly see in this, the absence of fathers, is the crisis of young men in particular. And obviously, we have an extremely acute crisis with young black men, do we not?
1: Well, I think that one way to keep fathers in the home would be to address some criminal justice concerns, the mass incarceration of people, especially low level drug offenders. I think there's, it's worth having a conversation about why it is that selling marijuana is a more lucrative and genuinely savvy economic choice for a person with limited opportunities in some of these communities.
0: Well, it's now it's legal. It's sh- a reasonable should, choice to make. We should encourage given... it. Absolutely. I agree. Well, um, right.
1: But um unfortunately, the people who are going to benefit the most out of legalization are people. I have a I have, you know a classmate who from Harvard Law, who is, you know, in whose family is in the liquor industry and is pivoting fast to the marijuana industry. And it's those people who already have a first mover advantage in the infrastructure who are going to largely benefit from the legalization of marijuana, while people who sold on the street are still going to be languishing away.
0: Well, in prison. We, so I mean this culture it's culture. hard. Yeah.
1: Go to ahead. avoid these structural realities, right? I'm not trying to bring up I'm not trying to avoid personal responsibility, but if you want to talk about why fathers aren't there, here's what it is, Andrew. Here's what it is. There's two options. There's two options. Either you believe that black men don't care about their children, have some kind of fundamentally intrinsic cultural lack of interest in their offspring, or you think that there are structural factors that are making it more difficult for black fathers to be in the home or for them to stay in relationships with the mothers of their children, right? And you are perfectly allowed to believe that there is some intrinsic cultural disinterest in one's offspring. Now, that hasn't been my life experience and that hasn't also been the experience of research that shows that the average black parent that black father spends more time with their child than the average father of other races. What is true, what is empirically true is su- structural issues like mass incarceration, structural issues like the fact that both black parents tend to have to work outside of the home for longer hours. The more affluent parents, this is not just black parents, lower do income you have, parents.
0: But, but, At honest, any race, you have a classic example in which obviously the low, it's so much more advantageous now for there to be two incomes rather than one in the circumstances right, in which but, you're talking. But, and yet, even with that massive Andrew, financial incentive, it's not happening. This is a problem. And its but, main impact is on the, the, boys, not girls. But,
1: but but, but, Andrew, are you interested in why is that happening? Because if you look if you, at, at, at a plain observation of, do you think that Black men have different feelings about integrity and their value and shame about not being able to hold down a job than white people? No. Do you think that Black men, you know, Do you think that black men feel good about not being able to earn an income and and buy a home and move a family into it at the same rates as as more affluent people? So if the issue, if you want more black men to have homes and to get married and to be able to spend money on a wedding and for a community to invest, wouldn't you think, well, maybe we should raise a minimum wage. Maybe we should create more educational opportunities for people to be able to earn a higher wage and access higher education. Don't you think we should have more affordable housing opportunities so people aren't envisioning a life with their kids in a tiny cramped ghetto apartment with lead in the walls that is making their kids um, intellectually impaired?
0: How how is it possible, Brianna, that, that the rate of fatherhood in the home among African Americans was so much higher when poverty and discrimination was so much greater? That's the question.
1: So discrimination was greater. But in terms of the actual wealth gap, they've only been measuring it since the 1950s or 60s. So we don't really know what the wealth gap was in the 1920s. But remember, the conditions of white America were very different in the 1920s as well. This is a pre-New Deal country where you have those you know, famously gripping, what's the fella's name, the photographer, those uh, black and white images of what life was like before highways and electricity. And America was a very rural country where people of all Backgrounds were suffering an extraordinary amount, and so you know, even if we only go back to 1950, because I don't want to you know just do raw conjecture, the wealth gap was actually smaller then. The fact the uh, well, wh- uh, wh- what a big surprise! The average black kid today. Wait a one wait one second though. The, the The average black kid today. This is important, you know. Is in a is in a, in a se- similarly segregated school as they were when there was actually de jure segregation, right? Because again, all of this redlining and housing. So that's not to say that things haven't gotten better in terms of interpersonal, you know, discrimination. Nobody would argue that. Nobody reasonable would argue that. Certainly, things have gotten better. But the fact that things haven't gotten better in one way shouldn't erase the overwhelming ways in which the kinds of drivers of disparities still persist and turning pivoting to culture pivoting to the thing that changes instead of the thing that has been the same throughout and causing the disparity throughout I think is a red herring especially I don't see
0: why it can't there be both is no Brianna. solution I, I don't see why it can't be both why you can't but acknowledge can that there both, are Andrew but I'm still yeah
1: it can be both because individuals are individuals. And sometimes we all have that relative or that friend who just can't get their act together. And that is what it is. But again, what is your policy solution, Andrew, to resolving that? Because it seems to me every time I ask you that, your response is to say, let's create sticks. Let's create negative incentives and create structure we would further take away benefits from people if they don't behave how we like. No, I Instead just said we, saying, could make, we could make
0: we could we could provide benefits on the grounds of staying in the same home, for example. We could make that a condition. OK, well,
1: look, look what's happening right now with let's look what's happening right now with this with these child tax credits that are going out in COVID relief. I think that's I think that's an incredible incentive. I think that we should be moving policy wise into that. Same direction. For decades, literally it was the opposite, where people were disincentivized from living together in a home. I would love to see more of those carrots applied instead of this the sticks being applied. Well, I would too. I Fiona, certainly I am, have no interest.
0: I'm open to that. Mm-hmm. I'm open to that. I, My I, I only convention no
1: arguing and yeah. encouraging.
0: Yeah. yeah. I'm very open to that argument. I really am, because I do think poor working class people in this country are struggling in ways that they really shouldn't, as long as we don't incentivize no work at all and the kind of culture that encourages people to do nothing that is well we can talk
1: about that too because that is that is philosophically i think a really interesting place to land given your earlier reference to automation right years ago decades ago people imagined a future where technology enabled us to have a lot more freedom People didn't have to work as much, the the work we would get shorter, and maybe people didn't even have to work. I talk a lot on my show as a Trekkie about this kind of utopian world where because of technology, they have been largely freed from many kinds of labor, right? And the consequence in Star Trek is not that everyone sits around playing Xbox and picking their noses, (laughs) it's that they are explorers. They explore the galaxy. They pursue knowledge for knowledge's sake. They are cooks and chefs and writers and poets and archaeologists, unlike a lot of different other kinds of sci-fi shows, right, where it's like people, the captain of the ship is a military officer or what have you. The captain of the Starship Enterprise, Captain Jean-Luc Picard, is an archaeologist by training, right? And if you are concerned about automation and you also believe in a basic human rights framework that human lives will have value even if there isn't literal labor for them to be engaged in then you have to start not uh, decoupling the idea of providing benefits and a good standard of living from someone's value just because they're a laborer
0: yeah well i would agree with you on that but what i would but i think the paradox of that is that we humans we kind of need goals and work and we need something to get up and get out ass out of bed and do every day and that we need to pursue goals that can reach completion that we can need work is part of our drive and part of our dignity we get an incredible amount of self-worth mm-hmm. out of a job well done about a good we provide someone else that these things are, are positive and that's all I'm saying here you don't want to encourage the inability you don't want to encourage people to end up in just complete passivity and not getting on with their lives in other words I'm not sure it's quite as utopian as you would like it to be if we all get our, ch- well, if we all get UBI, we might just sit like around that. our ass and play but, computer games all day. I mean, that would, would be one option. Would you?
1: Would I don't you, know. I think I might be tempted
0: here, to, to get up, have a joint in the morning to check out this, that and the other. I, I, I don't know. I, it wouldn't be good for me to take all the incentives for work away from me. And I, I'm just, that's just a because well, a human not, but thing. But it's not
1: all the incentives for work. Well, Andrew, imagine this. Mm
0: -hmm. Imagine
1: all of the things that need to be done in society that aren't currently done because they aren't perceived to have this very narrow work value, as in creating profit for someone at the top. So look at the caregiver economy and how underpaid those service workers are. Thinking of, of all of the old people with dementia or just physical maladies who are sitting up depressed and alone in communities that could be kind of people talking to them, engaging yep. with them,
0: yep. Yep. you
1: know, just supporting their human life. Think of all the babies and nurseries, all the kids and NICUs that need to be yep. held so that they can thrive. Think of all of the the subways that we go down into that are gritty and dirty and gross. And imagine if, you know, you just got a, you got an email that said, Oh, your shift is up and maybe it, we just go and do shifts, taking care of our community and, and beautifying it. with got it. And uh, basic it. cleanliness.
0: I mean, I would love to live in that world. Wh- wh- what is so go why on.
1: not work toward it then, Andrew? That's that's all I'm saying. Well, like, we, I, you we know, really I'm not. Do have to get more radical?
0: I'm just saying there was something if, called if we human want to nature to pursue. There's something called human nature would, would probably get in the way. That's all I'm saying. And. Giving See, people then, lots of money that they don't Andrew. have to do anything, to expecting them to be inspired every day for the greater good to do things, is not wait, a, wait, wait. Is not so a lots, practical gambit.
1: So, again, lots of money is a bit of a leap from providing human beings with a basic standard. Look,
0: I'm of I'm care not care. against the UBI. And, meaning Brianna, the Maslow's
1: ha- hierarchy. Of, I'm
0: not against the UBI. Right, well, I, I find it kind of an intriguing question. Not, I'm just not convinced that a a country that that you can uh, people who can afford leisure are going to necessarily work. That's all. It's just it's just a human nature thing.
1: But let me let me what I'm saying is I don't necessarily understand what the I don't have. I will admit this. I don't think there's an intrinsic value to work for work's sake. I think that there's an intrinsic value in human beings, in human lives. And I think that we should all be aspiring toward a world. Automation shouldn't be a dirty word. I would love to aspire toward a world where instead of some migrant farmer having to spend their whole day on their knees in the hot sun picking tomatoes, that someone else can, like that process can be automated and that migrant worker can take care of their family, can spend time with their children, can write songs, can sit at a telescope and it, it's discover new planets and figure out space travel and quantum physics, physics can do anything else in the world. And the idea that that isn't what we are aspiring for as a community, as a society, when automation is coming like it or not, I think shows a real pessimism and a real, I mean, I think we have a fundamental difference between how we view human nature and well, I'm not uh, the utopian. amount of esteem we hold the average human being in.
0: I'm not a Utah Well, what, every what, human being has. What do
1: you mean by that? I mean, well, first of all, it seems to me we should all be utopians, whether or not we have some skepticism about our ability to achieve it.
0: That's where should we disagree. Shouldn't
1: our goals obviously be utopian?
0: That's where we disagree.
1: So what what is your goal, dystopian? <laughs> no, it is it is what the you, world. What are you it's shooting real, for,
0: you, Andrew? The real world. I do not think well, we are about going to make
1: policy design and what we aspire yes, to. Yes,
0: and what we can say is that policies that are built upon creating a utopia will almost always fail because they violate human nature and they will almost always do more harm than good that is the basic conservative wait, 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 wait. principle Be so, biana so i'm you, not a progressive utopian so what are you
1: arguing for you're arguing for policies that are based on what well, making as opposed things, to a utopia making, policies making things policies that are based on a
0: little better a little improvement a, an examination of where we are an attempt practically to make things better and that's what i've tried to focus on here is what do we want to do to help make things a little bit better. Let me let me move, because I think we're not that far apart on this. I just have a much more realistic view, I would say, of what human beings can do and looking at history, what yeah, they and have I don't done. Think
1: it's, I don't think it's realistic to design a national highway system road by road in the little crevices of Boston, Massachusetts, I think that if you have big goals, if you want something to work, you have to anticipate and design it for the future that you want. And otherwise, it's incredibly short-sighted and you're going to have to be doing twice the amount of work to undo all the damage that you did no, see, this uh, is where we, short-term thinking.
0: Let's just accept this is a basic disagreement about our understanding of human history and human nature. I just have a, a, a much, what I would consider, yes, it's much more realist. I think you call it pessimist about what human beings can do, how human societies can be transformed. I think not that much, but I think we have a pretty good situation in the West as opposed to other countries. But let me move on to a little bit because it seems to me, when I one imagine- One in every
1: five children lives in poverty, Andrew. <laughs> in the richest country in the history of the world. And that was before the pandemic, one in every five children defined, lives in poverty. Poverty
0: defined relatively, right? Not absolutely.
1: Right. No, poverty defined by poverty levels that haven't been adjusted in the last 30 years. It's actually a much higher level than that. One in every five kids is food insecure in the United States of America. So, Andrew, it's not that I'm trying to be pessimistic about how we are. There are a lot of wonderful things about this country and things that we've achieved. But so often the successes of a country like America or of the West are used to elide the extent to which it could be a lot better because we have the wealth and ability to do so. And it's that excuse making that I object to.
0: Well, I, you can call it excuse making. I would say it's prudence, but we can agree to disagree about that. It's but prudent
1: I, to have one in every five ch- children no, living in poverty no, in the richest no, country no. in the
0: history of the world. Obviously not. The question I mean, Joe is, Joe
1: Biden right now is talking about these about how he's halved child poverty, right? That these child t- child tax credits have half child poverty, and so many on the left are asking, haven't. I think, a really important question. So, if it's possible to halve child poverty, or by whatever metric you think it is. Why didn't we do it before? And why haven't we eliminated child poverty? Right? Like, these are the questions we should be asking.
0: Well, the question is really well. There's it's a multiple question, multiple questions to be asked. But the question is, will the policy actually achieve what we want it to achieve? When you say cut poverty in half, it's sort of that's a very easy thing. If you hand someone a check, you can say you have twice as much money this year as you had last. I've ended poverty. Correct. Are the, are the under? Well, it's not entirely correct because the underlying question. That's what UBI is. you is. Oh, yeah, I know it is. I know, but let me explain why I think that's a, a slightly limited idea, which is it all depends on who that person is, how motivated they are, how capable they are of using that money well, how enterprising they are. and There are lots of other structures that define poverty as opposed to simply money. And, and look, but I'm not against it. I believe in a basic welfare state that is generous to the poor, that allows no one to slip through the cracks. I've always believed that. And I, but I do think there is a trade-off at some point at which you disincentivize work in which you overtax people who are actually doing things and creating wealth, and and the distribution can get whacked. But I'm not going to fight you about this. I, I agree with you. I think most are we overtaxing? Westerners are we believe, overtaxing
1: billionaires?
0: Yes, absolutely. Do you think, they already do you think we should taxables? have a wealth tax? I would think about it. Although we'll I don't no, someone it's very like practical. Jeff Bezos
1: paid. Jeff Bezos paid zero in taxes.
0: I look, last yes, year. I would. I absolutely believe that there should be more taxation of the super wealthy in order to improve the welfare safety. And I think you guys okay. have won the argument on that because the way that capitalism has evolved has turned into gross inequality. And but, we do need to correct I, for that, partly because I but believe in dr- capitalism.
1: Wait, I only bring that up, Andrew, because you just said that you think we're going to end up taxing the people who are actually working to pay for people who well, my aren't. i just is about- out. But that's a false, false trade off, because the reality is that all of the arguments that are coming from the left are about taxing the extremely wealthy who are not working, who are not productive, who are earning enormous amounts of passive income to return that money to the folks who did actually work, but who aren't getting the benefit of that bargain. All of the Amazon employees who are sleeping in their cars and peeing in bottles and struggling to get by.
0: I agree. A I, think time, I think it is time for an adjustment. I do. And that's why I voted for Biden. Mm-hmm. I, I am not antip- against that. But at the same time, I don't think it's utopia. I don't think it's going to cure everything. I don't think money solves all problems. I don't. I think there are deeper, more complicated questions. Now, let me, let's me let talk about one, which is but violence.
1: Those, those are all straw. I mean, you, you, well, you, those you are strongmen. Strong like you say structure. money structure. solves all problems. Well, because you're,
0: you're at some you, level, you know, your outlook you, is... You, you, go on. Go on, Brianna.
1: But Andrew, you, you defined... I, I specifically set out... a a policy prescription. You labeled it utopian. You set out your policy prescription and you labeled it pragmatic. I could very easily label what you've described as a basic continuation of the status quo with only incremental changes as deeply dystopian, right? I could say you have a dystopian project where you are on some level more comfortable with the enormous rates of poverty homelessness, interpersonal abuse, violent crime, all of these things that persist in America and that are largely able to be um, mediated through social programs.
0: You mean solved by and money? And you're
1: willing to... That's can, what you
0: mean.
1: As opposed to, no, not exclusively, but in part, yes. Is that an objection to you? Is it it's a family and poverty money so that they're no longer in poverty morally abhorrent to you? It well, morally I it's more
0: objectional. It, it's something that that I think we can do better of as a society. I, I think that that as as uh, so.
1: What would your solution be if f- to a family, let's say a single a, a two parent family with three children, where the both parents earn a minimum wage and they aren't able, they the family is still in, in poverty. What would your solution be? I'm not to that the, to that know, family, but for giving them money.
0: I th- I think that would help a lot. And in terms of getting a basic, mm-hmm. as long as they're in the home together, taking care of their kids, doing their best and working hard, they should not be under this sort of stress in a free society. I really agree with you. And, and I'm happy I to follow b- up. And that's what why I parents voted are bad. But let me just correct the record a what, little what bit. What if I, you but, called you called mm-hmm, your own mm-hmm. program utopian. You chant you. I called Star Im-
1: Trek utopian. I called Star <laughs> Trek utopian. i no, not, but you I'm not like with the idea of a utopia. Yeah, I wouldn't, I'm not uncomfortable with the idea of the label of a utopian. I would just like to point out that if, if my, I think you should aspire, of course, toward utopia because you are aspiring toward a dystopia. And I, I was trying to avoid, uh, you know, appending that negative label and stigmatizing label to what you were describing. But if you're if it's going to be, you know, if I'm going to be kind of characterized as unrealistic because of the label dystopia, I think that it's only a, a utopia. It's only fair to do the reverse. But can I just ask, because I, I do think this is intellectually very relevant. What if the parents in that scenario are not hard workers? What if the parents in that scenario are addicted to drugs? What if the parents in that scenario have mental illness or schizophrenia, something that keeps them out of the house or ability to keep a job? What should be done? But let's pretend that they could let's assume that they can still take care of the kids. Right. That this isn't a foster care situation. What do you think should be done? The parents are bad people. Let's say they're just also, they, they cheat on their taxes and they kick dogs and they're terrible people. <laughs> okay.
0: That's, what should be done about <laughs> do the you,
1: kids who are still living in poverty?
0: Uh, well, what if we, if you give the parents the check, they may not spend it on the kids, for example. What would be your answer to sending the money when they're just going to spend it on drugs? What's your answer?
1: I think for one... I think the answer is making sure that housing is a human, housing is a human right. So there's affordable housing options for everyone, regardless of the situation. And so when you say give people money, I don't necessarily think I think there are probably cases where it's better to have kind of structural, you know, structural edifices in place that don't require things to pass through the parents. I think in most cases and studies have shown this parents spend money on food, housing and clothes. That's what's happened with these stimulus checks. For instance, in some cases, I would say, let's obviously have drug treatment facilities, but also let's have housing as a human right. But my instinct would never be to withhold a benefit from the children, from the family unit, because of the behavior of the parents.
0: Oh, and I would I, also I can not withhold that.
1: certain benefits from the parents. I can understand the that. the parents are spending money on I drugs, understand that. that they that, shouldn't starve to death my and only that they should have a roof over dis- their heads.
0: My only disagreement with you is whether the state is the, the only resource for people not to go on dr- not to get addicted to drugs. Uh, well, of course not it's to, not, but not not I'm to, not, not to, a, to, a d-
1: clergy member. I well, don't have I any know, other... I know,
0: but I know, but, 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 but you also might have a role to play, that there are social and cultural institutions and people who have a role to play in attempting to prevent people from engaging in self destructive behavior. And then we Andrew, can set cultural norms. Well, because I don't think the state I, I is have that no effective. Issue with to be churches. And because I don't want but, government to be as big as you want it to be, because I think it minimizes the scope for human freedom. I am very much in favor of a, sen- a sane and sensible welfare state. Absolutely. I'm not. I, 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 I that's why I supported Biden even though there's plenty of stuff I don't agree with him on. I do think we need it but I'm not sure that it's going to cure every problem that's all I'm saying because I do think there are psychological, cultural, well, and social issues involved.
1: I don't think it's going <laughs> to cure every problem either Andrew. Okay. I don't think it's going to cure every well, problem then I'm but sure I think we, that we haven't had a minimum wage raise since 2009 since Bush was president and I think we need a minimum wage raise. I think there are a lot of problems that very much could be solved by the state and that is at, in fact the role of the state and I would much rather ground my analysis and my ethics and my political project in what the government can do as opposed to, I think, a, a kind of discourse which is really centered on excusing why the government shouldn't do what is very much in its power.
0: Well, that's one way of describing a conservative and a leftist approach <laughs> to to society. And, and a conservative will have less ambition because he doesn't believe or she doesn't believe that society is actually perfectible and will increase the scope for individual behavior independent, as opposed to this government. I I take your point of view. I I think under these circumstances, I could go quite a long way towards it. and I think that's fair enough. And to vote for Biden on those grounds is fair enough for me. I'm just saying I find the way in which you're finding that that's the answer. Everything is not right. And your refusal to really grapple with cultural questions in, in this context but so let me ask what's, you. What's, what's ask the you,
1: grappling, Andrew? What's the grappling?
0: Well, say for example. Well, what be-
1: is it that I'm not saying that you what, that you want me to say?
0: That it's much better. You know, I feel as though you're. let I me. Mean, I mean, let me tell you. I'm answering that question directly. Sure. That it would be better sure. if if more African American parents stay together with their kids. Just that statement.
1: I think it would be better if all. Research shows that two-parent households succeed better. And that is true of white households and Asian households and every household. And I think that there but are it's very true many that 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 the people
0: that the It's true that the situation is much worse for African-American kids. That's what I want you to say.
1: Of course it's true. Do, I, I don't know that you need me to look over your shoulder and, and read the statistics along with no, you. No, I but know. But the point that I'm trying to make, there's nothing untoward or mysterious about that. Right. Like, like, there's nothing untoward or mysterious about it. What the reason why people have skepticism about you, Andrew, is the fact that you seem to be focused on every. It's not that there's not I think that some people don't want to admit basic statistical facts. And I'm, I'm with you on that. But there's another group of people who says, of course, black sociologists, lefty sociologists spend a lot of time talking about exactly this issue. They don't shy away from this issue. But they're working to come up with productive solutions about how to remedy that problem. Whereas what it feels like on the right is that fact is simply held up as an excuse for why nobody should be invested in racial disparities or why we should not attend to the other drivers of those disparities that existed long before those marriage rates or whatever statistics emerged. So we don't have to pay attention to the fact that there has been this enormous expropriation of wealth From working class people of all races, especially over the last 30 or 40 years as union density has collapsed and labor power has weakened, that has gone to the top 1%. And instead, we have these narratives that serve, frankly, to sever the interests of working class white people, which are very much linked to the interests of working class black people. And cause them to feel a sense of cultural and economic superiority that is, in fact, ephemeral. And they continue to vote for and support candidates that aren't going to support their economic interests. And I would say the same for Black people. You keep raising Joe Biden. I would argue that supporting Joe Biden goes nowhere toward achieving my, let's say, utopian vision of the future. In fact, neoliberal candidates and presidents like Joe Biden serve to simply present a veneer of choice between two corporatized parties that, as we can see now in this infrastructure debacle, are working in lockstep to prevent basic social advancements like a $15 minimum wage from coming into effect, like the child tax credits from becoming permanent, like basic infrastructure, like our highway system from being maintained, like providing broadband to huge swaths of the country, many of them rural and white, where kids can't do their homework and have no chance of keeping up with the coasts because they can't even get online and with all of that going on it just feels Andrew. it's not it's not that i'm sensitive about the idea of black people not having two-parent homes i don't you know it's just in the grand scheme of the overwhelming forces that are aligned against working-class people in this country it's just such a speck of dust
0: well that's where we (laughs) i do not think it's a speck of dust on the windshield but i let me let me let me say one reason people are skeptical about the left let me put it this way, is that when someone like me comes along and says, oh, yeah, I can see your point there. I would be happy to do that. I'd be happy to do that. And then uh, but I also think this and this. And all they say is, well, you can't say this and this. That makes you an evil white supremacist. Therefore, we have no interest in you whatsoever. Well, if I, have why I said not? You can't say. Why not? Why not found a, have we're I said not,
1: I, that you can't say anything?
0: So what? I'm sorry. Have I'm I said a,
1: that you can't say
0: anything. I can say anything I want. Obviously, <laughs> I'm just saying that yeah, there's an I element no, in which. Yeah, I
1: have which, no issue with it.
0: Yeah. Well, we're. I look. We're not that far apart. I am just, and I think one of the frustrating things is I think that to call these cultural questions a spec, is is wrong. Now, I, I now let's. I well, want to talk to this. As, it would
1: be more relevant, and it would be less of a spec, Andrew. If again you had a policy prescription as to how to improve the situation, then people would take it in good faith.
0: Well, I do, But it doesn't
1: seem like it's in good faith.
0: I do. I'm in favor of many of the things that you've argued for. I'm fine with it. I voted for a candidate to propose those things. So I don't know what but you, you, what your I issue you is. Did it with. It. But you I mean, you didn't. You didn't
1: because actually, Joe Biden doesn't support any but I of that. I don't think it's
0: sufficient. <laughs> I don't think it. It made, It's not sufficient for what I think should be the flourishing of every group in the society. I do not think that is by economics alone, and I think we can agree to disagree on that. But let me focus on part of this because uh, moving a little bit forward is take the issue of violence. It was the crime, murder, basically. The last year has seen an astonishing increased in the loss of black life in America that that the number of black Americans being murdered on a daily basis is simply out of any understanding of a western society it that to me to live and obviously not all african-americans plenty of african-americans are middle class and are not involved in these localized unbelievable warfare zones and why does is that murder rate so high you 56% of the murders last year were committed by black men, who represent 6% of the population. Isn't that a crisis? And even a greater proportion of victims of gun violence are African American, and many of them young, innocent children, bystanders, uh, in near my neighborhood in D.C., like two-year-old shot. To me, that is an unbelievable crisis that we need to have. And I noticed that the, the left, their view is the way to solve this is to take the police, defund them, abolish them, abolish prisons in a way that strikes me as unleashing a tornado of violence against African-Americans in this country. What, how did you respond to those thoughts?
1: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you might have a little bit of a misunderstanding about what the defund movement is all about. And I just had a conversation, I actually just interviewed for my podcast earlier today, India Walton, who just won her primary You know, as the first socialist mayor of Buffalo, first socialist mayor to be elected in a major city in the last 50 years. And she comes from a community that's directly affected by that kind of violence and is deeply committed to Fixing it. I think no one is more committed to fixing it than the people who are actually from those communities. And I think it's sometimes feels frustrating, a little patronizing for folks who don't have the direct exposure to kind of sometimes performatively behave as though they care more about the people in those communities. Like people in the communities care a lot. And the argument is that we need to start being serious about what's driving all of that crime. And in a lot of ways, the whole conversation, hour long conversation we've been having about poverty is really a conversation about the predictors of crime. I'm sure you've done your research and spoken to a lot of criminologists on the show who can tell you outright what the main predictors of crime are and how relevant poverty is, how relevant concentrated urban poverty is, and particularly the design of a lot of these neighborhoods where it's stacked high in multifamily units without any common spaces, the incredible impact that architecture and urban planning has on human behavior, the impact that a lack of educational opportunities, food deserts, the ability to run your life and your family the way that people in more affluent areas do all come into play. And so what the argument is from the defund movement, and this is, I think, was really great. India is really great at describing this, is that you have to have an infrastructure in place on the path to to defund. Right. No one is advocating that you go up to the prisons right now and fling open the doors. The argument is that we have to get serious about addressing the root causes of crime. To bring our crime rates down to other similarly situated countries, to address the proliferation of guns and the way that illegal drugs ha- are motivating crime, including by legalizing at least some kinds of drugs. Some people would say all, but that's a debate that needs to be had. And to get at root causes so we can get to a place where mass incarceration is no longer an issue. And part of the step along that way is looking at the ways that police funds have largely been going to policies that don't actually prevent crime. So you see a city like Los Angeles where 50 percent of the, the city budget goes to the police department and crime rates go up and up and funding just goes up and up. And in every other context, if you saw if conservatives saw a government, a government policy throwing good money after bad, they would say, no, let's defund that. You know, well, hold on and a second. No let me let, let me a couple or any other points. kind of thing. Well, well, if I'm I'm almost done. Just one one the one last point I would make about the Defund movement is that the issue and many the policy that is being advocated for is to shift resources from let's say buying tanks that can drive up and down a street and really provide no protection or you know benefit for anybody to training police officers or training people who are not police officers, whatever you want to call them, to meet the needs of what the majority of calls on the job are. So these social worker style calls where people are responding to mental health issues, people are responding to domestic violence, issues that are not the same kinds of typical police work that people have in their mind from watching SVU or whatever, which suck up disproportionate amounts of the resources that well, we've had
0: we've had a, a bit of a real life experiment in this that in new york city for example they immediately disbanded a 600 person police agency that's particularly motivated to go out and stop crime before it happens these are the cops that go out there and get into trouble and they often they are more likely to shoot people accidentally or wrongly than other groups they disbanded entirely uh, i don't know how many Black hmm. African-Americans have been killed as a function of that disbandment, but many. You know, Tony Blair had a very good phrase at this, which is, which Wait, I'm is how but, the left... I'm sorry, but Andrew, of-
1: can you drill down on that? Because I'm patient. If you want to look up whatever the numbers are on that, because, you know, if we were going to have a conversation about this group of police officers that I'm not familiar with, I, and I genuinely want to know, you're saying that they were kind of a Minority Report-style crew that was supposed to seek out crime before it happened, that they were engaged in... More confrontations with the populace that resulted in the killings of black people, you're saying. But now that it's been disbanded, there yes. have been even more deaths. But can do you have any numbers on that?
0: Fewer, you know, fewer what what is the shootings. relationship
1: between the number of people that were called, uh, the number of people that were killed because of this minority report style? Well, it sounds like a kind of vigilante. All we can say
0: is, well, very, it's, it very was very hard to get on down. the civil
1: liberties front.
0: We can drill mm-hmm. down that a lot if we wanted to. I'm not sure that's particularly fruitful at this point. My point is simply that. I don't think but, even but you would. But it is,
1: Andrew, if you're going to use it as an example. Taking,
0: well, I'm just looking at examples. I'm sorry, the delay is. <laughs> cities around the country, many cities around the country have, have withdrawn cops, have seen lots of retirements and have changed policies and have withdrawn the aggressive. And we have seen now two years in a row, something like 25% each year increase in the murder rate of African-Americans, almost overwhelmingly African-Americans. In other words, I think you could make an argument that what has been done in response to the Black Lives Matter has taken countless black lives. And there has been no actual attempt to acknowledge this problem, that we have to have order. We have to have the police. And when we look at polling, you you find that mm -hmm. black Americans believe that as well, that in fact there are more invested in more police being in their neighborhoods than less police sure. and they want good. So, and, and they were also mm-hmm. the prime movers behind what you call mass incarceration were African American leaders in the inner city that were beset by levels of violence and terror that were unimaginable. And when I, I feel like Glenn Lowry, but I don't know why people can't just acknowledge that that is evil, that these people are awful, that the way they kill other human beings with absolute Blytheness is disgusting and that I would triple the amount of police in those neighborhoods. I would focus dramatically on those. Well, I
1: don't I don't Okay, so I don't use words like I don't describe human humans in that in those kinds of terms because that's just part of my ethical kind of human Someone who ideological has a project that I don't another... expect anybody else I, I don't expect anybody else to agree with me on that. That's just where I'm coming from. I just want to put that out there. Just consider it. It's like a it's you know, almost a religious, it's just my personal belief. But What you just described has nothing to do. Police officers who a lot of people have documented, have quit quit in record numbers in 2020 prior, leading up to the George Floyd uh, uh, uprising, people think in large part because of COVID. People who are on the border of retirement, a lot of folks just decided to go ahead and do it because they didn't want to take on the personal risk, especially at a time when we were before vaccines and all of that. So there are a lot of reasons why that people have self-selected out of the police force. That is not, to fund the police. That is not the same thing. Because let's go back to my original point. The point is that, of course, there needs to be a meaningful addressing of the root causes of crime before you suddenly take away an infrastructure that's protecting people in their communities. That needs to come first. And if we're not seeing a deep investment in alleviating the causes of criminality, of course, you're going to see. You're not going to magically see so a you you would have opposed crime rates just because you get away get rid of police.
0: You would have opposed the drawdown of cops in the last year.
1: I don't think that you should do anything without first creating an edifice of investment in addressing the root causes of crime. Of course, if if, if I want, if I don't like a low income housing unit because it has filled with lead paint and it is hurting people with mold and stuff on the inside, I don't tear it down and throw everyone on the street and say two years from now, I'm going to build you a nice place to live. Of course not. That's not how that's not the order of operations of policy. So I think it's really disingenuous to point to, you know, a policy that has nothing to do with the shift of resources that the defund movement is describing toward first responding first to the root causes and say, well, this is proof that defund doesn't work. Because that's like saying, you know, that, you know, uh, a, a diet doesn't work because you bought a bunch of you know, diet meals and put them in the freezer, but haven't consumed a single one. We're
0: not, not going to disagree. I just think that the way it's been done the last year has been pretty appalling in terms of its costs. Why? Yeah, well it hasn't, if poverty, I mean, it hasn't
1: been done. if poverty, hasn't been done
0: if poverty is the thing that creates crime, why are the murder rates in the African American community so much higher than in similarly poor white communities?
1: Well, it's not just poverty. It's okay. all of the things that I pointed to before, right? Concentrated urban development, no other community, well, no other ethnic group is so disproportionately concentrated. But you know what, Andrew? I mean, let me put that question to you. What do you think? Why do you think the crime is so concentrated in the Black community?
0: That's a very good question. I think partly it was a function of the drug war, which I'm against, which made yeah, people, right. took people into gangs in ways that were incredibly bad so I've al- I've always been in favor of ending the drug war I tell you what I do think is a factor it's that because you don't see young women doing this you it's almost entirely young black men and it's because they have not had the resources they have do not have the fathers or the authority figures to guide them to help well them, it's not almost entirely
1: them. young black men. To your own statistic, it's disproportionately young black. Well, men. Well, that's what I mean. No way. I mean, You're I, within those young black men.
0: well, I mean, within the communities that they're committing these are horrible, it's almost always it's not it. That's that. Well, every we, but, we yeah. live in a
1: segreg we live in a segregated country, yeah, yeah, yeah. so okay. every community kills its own like white on white crime, black on black crime. Every community kills itself. because right, we live it in is. it is a uh, segregated country.
0: It is, according to the FBI, an actual majority of the crimes of murders, sorry, murders the crime is different, are committed by this group surely we need to have a very good discussion about why that's what is it and now surely i'm happy to take into account your factors as long as i'm happy to take into account what you're describing if you're also prepared to say that the way in which young black kids black men are brought up without these kind of authority figures in their lives is a is an also a problem that we need to be worried about
1: how much Andrew, how, well,
0: the fact you can't answer use... yes is really frustrating to me. <laughs> Why can't you say yes? It's obviously well, true, right?
1: Wait a minute, Andrew. Well, I, I first of all, I think it's a little frustrating to be. I'm, I'm not a sociologist, so my timidity here is not because I. It might be true. It might not be true. I I don't know. And I don't have a real interest. I don't understand why you're asking someone like me when there have have been thousands of people who've devoted entire careers to giving you very specific answers about what the causes and relationship between all these different factors are. And I'd be really interested to hear you engage directly with someone like that. Well, they have. The reason that I was going to follow up with you in a different way is because all I know is I'm not an expert, right? So all I know is my life experience and anecdota is not especially useful. And I completely acknowledge that it doesn't, doesn't mean a lot, but I'm curious what you're imagining um, and how much exposure you have to this way that young black men are raised. Um, Like, what do you imagine is the, what are the lessons that are imparted? What were the lessons that were said to you? What did your father do for you that made you not grow up in take up arms as opposed to one of the minorities minority quantity of black men who engage in who commit murder again to be clear a very small percentage of black men who ever commit a murder
0: yes of course i think the right answer there would be to compare i mean everyone's particularly different Would be to compare me with someone in the same basic socioeconomic background which was sort of i don't know my parents didn't go to college but they weren't we weren't we were and we were Pretty, I mean, we, it, the, it was paycheck to paycheck, but we weren't privileged in, in many which way. And compare that with someone with the same subject who didn't have a father in the home. Now, my father stuck around. That's all he did. He wasn't, I mean, he did more than that, but he wasn't some paragon of virtue. And I think when you look at the, for example, if you look in, in the UK and you see the plight they have with young white men, <laughs> working class white men, you also find fatherlessness to be at least a contributing factor. I mean, we can I mean, obviously there's no exact answer to this because it's but we can see correlations and all the rest of it. Um, so I think, yes, I do think that you are much more likely to have an antisocial adolescence and adulthood if you do not have a father in the home. Uh, there may be many other reasons, many other reasons. And I agree with you. Concentrated poverty. Bad architecture, the drug war—all these things matter. Mm -hmm. I I do think we, I do think we share more, we agree more than we disagree. Actually, Um, yeah, I I
1: think, I think that's probably uh, true. But
0: I, but I just worry about this. And we say exposure. I mean, I, you know, I lived in an overwhelmingly African American neighborhood. It's changed in D.C. dramatically, but I lived in one. I saw this happening all around me and i lived next to a, a, a crack house on the corner i mean i've seen and my response to that was to donate and give money to this local after-school center so kids could go somewhere and and have art and have some productive capabilities but it broke my heart to see these young black men with no direction and deeply frustrated and i i wanted to help i just I, I just feel some of these familial dynamics play a very important role. And I think especially very early childhood development plays a very important role. I would, you know, like providing after school mm, activities certain. or focusing on pre-K focusing on, especially the young would help. Um, but, I, I
1: think that that's demonstrably true. Yeah.
0: But I think we have to identify the problem, with particularly boys. Girls seem to be black women are, are not doing as badly as black men in the society. In fact, they could be described as a huge success story in America. I don't think they've reached the success they deserve, but I definitely can see a trajectory that's pretty good right now. I and mean, It's not terrible, given the, the incredible obstacles that black women face in getting through the day. I think it's kind of a staggering achievement, but that makes it all the more opposite, I think, to focus on how we can save black boys from the futures that they are currently engaging. Well, what, um, what
1: would you prescribe for the white boys you described in, in England?
0: I would what say is the their dads need to be involved. There's no one that can replace the dad. No one. And But if not, we need pastors. We need volunteers. We need people to help these kids. But most of the people yeah. that do that, that, I talk to say we have some success, but at some level, if, if once they've come from the home that is that chaotic and that hard, and they've had this emotional, not emotional and psychological scarring and instability, it gets very hard. The older they get, to to get them back on the right. So, yeah, I'm not, so you
1: know, I the I reason think, I mentioned
0: Tony Blair yeah, is that his phrase, which was "tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime," which was which which helped Labour win elections, is how the left tackled crime, which is that it should be both. And my worry is that when people on the left just constantly never talk about people's own personal responsibility for killing another human being and talk constantly about structural questions, which are valid and we should but they're missing a component that would help make this better. That's my concern.
1: You know, I had this, I said this, this was with Glenn Lowry too. It's, It's funny to me because I think that when someone gets murdered, all I hear is people saying, it's horrible. I mean, it wasn't your two year old black kid that got murdered. It wasn't your it wasn't your grandmother who had a bullet and ricochet off her necklace and almost kill her. That was my grandmother, literally my grandmother. So I don't I'm sorry. We have different perspectives, Andrew, and I don't mean to try to kind of pull a pull rank here, but I am black and I talk to black people every day. And when this violence impacts us in our community, we talk about it. Yeah, there's no.
0: I know, I know that happens. I'm, I'm absolutely so, aware of that. But the so, question is, how do we talk about it so in front the, uh, of the white people? How do you deal with this in front of the general? And, you know, I belong it, to a minority. It, in the
1: same way. but the,
0: It's not in the, the, the same the, way.
1: Andrew, the, the, the conversation about what to do about it is a separate conversation from the expression of frustration and grief and, and terror about having experienced it. And again, Andrew, well, the problem is that so many people... And I'm not saying that you're necessarily doing this, but so many people raise the specter of why don't Black people care about Black-on-Black crime? Why aren't they mad about violence in their own community? And all of this, which is a straw myth. It's just a figment. It's not real. The people in the Black community spend all of their time protesting, but nobody cares. The media doesn't care. The mainstream white media isn't invested unless they're able to create some salacious interracial dynamic that they can then report on, right? Right. So to me, my frustration, my only hesitation is not from talking about the tragedy of what it means to experience inner city violence. My only hesitation is whether or not talking about the tragedy in a certain kind of way is done to stigmatize the community as a whole and justify a response in terms of criminal justice and policing that does nothing to ameliorate the root causes of crime or actually prevent recidivism. So the idea of tough on crime, okay, what does that actually end up meaning in effect? It means in the United States, we have longer print prison sentences in, in Europe but, and higher recidivism rates, right? Because you, you murder someone in Sweden, you go to jail for like eight years, and then you get out and you don't commit another murder. And so we need to be having a different kind of conversation. If you're genuinely invested in not having black people die, if not having anybody die, if not having anybody be the victim of murder and terror the way that we have too often in this country, these random sporadic events of mass violence as well, then we need to have a conversation about, yes, I'm sorry, the structural differences between what is going on in a country like America and what's going on in a country like Sweden or even a country like the UK, where they have many fewer guns in the streets, many less incidences of violence, and frankly, a lot more social support. They're tough on crime, wishes it could look like. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't hold a candle to what we mean here by tough on crime, which genuinely means being punitive without results. That's what people are against, being punitive without results. That I, just makes us a vengeful, vindictive society I'm, without any I'm good ver- outcomes.
0: I am very happy to endorse what you've said and to have you say that uncomplicatedly. <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, it shouldn't be, and this is the problem with the polarized rhetoric is when once I brings up this point, the other side has to believe it's bad faith or they're not observing these other important things and they're using it, they're weaponizing mm. it in this way. Uh, I, I think there is there's a way in which we could we the two of us could sit down and hammer out probably an agreement of how we would do it one of the things i'm interested in, in terms of recidivism is the use of psilocybin in jails mm-hmm. to help people actually it's a huge has a huge impact what on is, recidivism. what is
1: what is uh, magic sorry,
0: mushrooms <laughs> it's it's psychedelic oh. <laughs> drugs uh, uh well you laugh but it's actually proving very successful i mean i'm if it works do it. I don't care what it is. If it works, if it helps people get out of their previous mindset and helps them move forward, and I think we should make we should be much more concerned about conditions in prisons. I think we should be as as citizens. We should be going in. We should be trying to help these, especially these young people, find a way forward. And I I agree with you on that. I do. But I want to I want to finish on a more positive note. Is one of the things that <laughs> sure. I have always loved about this country, and which is why I sometimes. I get whiplash sometimes because if I think of a group of people who have been more powerful culturally and socially in the world, globally as a brand, African-Americans are an extraordinary force in global. People want to listen to African-American music across the world. They worship black athletes. There, There is a huge amount of positive culture. There's a great amount of intellectual life. I mean, in some ways, black intellectual life has been more alive the last 20 years than white intellectual life. How do we celebrate this cultural power? Because its it strikes me that sometimes African-Americans are always portrayed in the light of as a difficulty or as a crisis or as a... And we don't see the extraordinary success. I mean, I think of someone like Lil Nas X. Okay? I don't know where he came from, mm. but he is a genius. Mm. And... He's global. I mean, you name another group in any other country that has that kind of power socially and culturally. What is that?
1: I mean, people are really into this K-pop stuff.
0: <laughs> this what stuff? Um, K-pop? The,
1: the K-pop. Mm-hmm. Oh, the BTS K-pop. Oh, yes. Big.
0: That's true. K-pop, maybe. That's, a, um, that's an example. The Brits are also punched way above their weight culturally and socially. But African-Americans kick totally, ass globally. Totally.
1: Well, you know, I, again, am not a s- cultural scholar. No, you're not. I think someone like, a, a, you know, Cornell West might be a good person. to.
0: He's going <laughs> to come on and talk about, about, about it. sort
1: of a question.
0: But how's he? Good. Just, how, yeah, how, yeah, yeah, he is. That'll, that'll an I'm episode. scheduled to talk to him in a, in a few weeks. And that's one of the questions I wanted to. I'm just interested in how you, what you, uh, how.
1: Well, he, that here, here's of, what I'll, yeah. I'll say about Black cultural products. It's a double-edged sword. because there are many black culture products that are not supported and disseminated and made available and visible by what is ultimately still a frankly white distribution mechanism that i would argue are more meaningful and have would have a bigger cultural impact and a better better cultural impact for black americans themselves can you give me and an example and this is a conversation that again cornell west so for example you know we had someone like boots rally on the show and there are a lot of There's a robust conversation in the hip hop community about the ways in which kind of politically left, politically adversarial, socialistic, even hip hop was suppressed on radio stations in terms of plays and access more broadly in in favor of gangster rap in the 80s and 90s. Right. And how groups like the coup, Boots Riley's group, and, and others who had socially conscious rap have never been able to get the same access or radio play. And you can say it's just because it wasn't as good and that that's what the appetite of consumers was, but there's some evidence that that wasn't actually the case. Right. Hmm. And you see the ways in which sometimes these political, sorry, these um, athletes are weaponized politically in ways that are not necessarily productive as well. So you have athletes held up as examples of success that are ultimately used to legitimize a system which does not really create avenues for success that are meaningful for everybody who's like not six foot seven and extraordinarily athletically talented. Or musically Um, And then those figures are, or musically talented, right? And so you have, you know, generations of kids who are thinking they're going to aspire to be a billionaire like Rihanna Or you have Beyonce and Jay-Z being trotted out with this Tiffany's diamond line using Basquiat as a prop, completely ignoring Basquiat's politics and the politics of what it means to be associated with a company like Tiffany's that has this record of blood diamond mining and all these other kinds of things, which, of course, are disproportionately affecting black people in other countries. So there is this and not to mention, oh, gosh, the political potential of the NBA strike last summer and what that could have done in terms of, you know, Power, being able to achieve, working class power in America and across the world comes primarily from withholding one's labor, the ability for working people to withhold their labor and the decline of unions over the last 30 to 40 years or so as both parties, the Democratic Party used to be the Labor Party, but increasingly declined from investing in labor in favor of dark money, big money opportunities that emerged due to new campaign finance rules and the advent of television ads, and different incentives that, that emerged throughout the 80s and 90s, that the reality is that we have had a very weak labor force for the last few decades. However, the NBA are this really unique labor force that commands an enormous amount of money, drives an enormous amount of money, with a, concentrated on the ability of a very small number of people to work. And When they were threatening to strike last summer, and... A, That was an incredibly powerful moment where they could have demanded any number of concessions that Biden would have had to listen to much more than any protests in the street. And enter Barack Obama, who tends to show up right at the point where there could be some significant cultural impacts led by these big black cultural figures and diffuses it all. Right. So there is this way that I sometimes cynically believe that black Americans are allowed to have. Just enough runway (laughs) <laughs> to act as a kind of controlled opposition, to be honest. And these kind of cultural products, well, obviously I have, you know, yesterday was the anniversary of Songs in the Key of Life. My, I think is the best album that was ever made and I'm enormously proud of the, the cultural contributions of my community. I also am, find myself at times frustrated, and we talk about this in the show a lot, at the extent to which those figureheads are so easily captured. You have Black Lives Matter leaders doing Cadillac commercials, Colin Kaepernick, has a Netflix special. I mean, I want to believe that those kinds of things don't impact their willingness to fight for the communities that put them on the map and where they came from. But all too often, status and broader acclaim comes at the expense of actually being able to be an effective conduit for the progress of your own community. So I know that you wanted to (laughs) end on a happy note no <laughs> i just get I just, like, oh, you talking, to,
0: talking to socialists i don't know uh it's 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 always socialism in the end um but look look Brianna. The, the, the
1: colin kaepernick ice cream is delicious i'll say that the colin kaepernick ben and jerry's ice cream it's dairy free and it's a 10 out of 10 and my lactose intolerant self can handle it and it's divine strong recommend
0: Brianna, I am so grateful for you coming on. I'm glad for your your uh, temperament and your ability to tolerate the questions that I've lobbed at you. I think we've had a very interesting and I hope productive in a way conversation. I'm never going to be a socialist like you, but I'm definitely eager to learn from what you have to say. And I think our readers and listeners are too. So I just want to thank you again and remind people that Bad Faith is a fantastic podcast. You should definitely listen to Brianna. I mean, I think you've seen exactly how she can conduct a conversation in. Very vivid ways. So, thank you again, Brianna. I I really appreciate. it. I will bring up the thank cultural you, power as, with Cornell. As do I. <laughs> and uh,
1: I look forward to listening to that.
0: Uh, yes. And thank you for having me on. Oh, You've you're been very so gracious, welcome. and I appreciate it. It was. It, it's it's fun, and we need to talk more across these divides. Thank you so much.
1: We do. Okay,
0: next week. I don't know what we got next week. I do know, but I can't remember at this very moment. But Cornell West is coming up. We have a bunch of very interesting guests coming up. Thanks to Brianna. Check in with us next week. Get the weekly dish on Friday. And and subscribe, please. There's lots of you listening not subscribing. You need to subscribe to support us, even though uh, you we may have to put this podcast, we may have to start making it for just subscribers only, but we don't want to do that. So subscribe. Subscribe. Thanks, Brianna. And see you all next week.